I preach here on a regular basis at, at EBF, as you know. And though I can get into the mode of cranking out sermon after sermon, it's kind of like uh, you write a term paper and you present it and you do it again and again and again. And I want you to know that I, I'm still into it. Love God's word, love preaching God's word, and I hope you're still into it as well. But from time to time, I have to stop and I have to ask myself, do I really believe this? I wrote a sermon this week and I, and I thought, do you really believe that? I mean, you're going to preach it because you're in cranking mode, but do you really believe that? And I know you're in listening mode. You've been attending churches, you know, church services several Sundays in a row, but do you really still believe the word? I mean, there's some Sundays you sit there and you go, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm not going to buy into that. But I, so I just got to pause this morning and ask myself, do I really believe what I'm preaching and do you really believe what you're hearing? And sometimes we have to admit it, we don't. And so I'm going to ask the Lord this morning to do some work in our heart and our lives so that we'll actually believe what we're hearing and that we will obey by his grace and by his power. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we we admit we come here distracted. Some of us are stuck in sin, in a challenging relationship, stress of finals, lots going on. We just kind of want to come to church, get it over with, move on our lives. And, and I just ask, Father, that wouldn't happen today. You would engage us with your word, speak to us by your spirit, stir us up to, to really see what you were speaking here. And in, in, in March 2015, before many of us go on a, a spring break of sorts, I just ask that you would stir us up and that your word would not fall to the ground void, which never will, that it would turn and, and bear much fruit. So do a great work in us this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. There's this guy named William Carey. Maybe you've heard of him. He is called the father of modern missions. And he has this famous saying, goes like this. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. He embodied that statement. He was a man in the late 1700s who went all out as a missionary to India, preached the gospel far and wide. He helped translate the Bible into several languages of India's major languages, and he was instrumental in the banning of infanticide, widow burning, and assisted suicide. He started a college. He started a seminary. He spent 41 years in India without a furlough and led many to the Lord And his work and legacy has impacted millions, perhaps some of you, and inspired many future missionaries. Let's latch on to his phrase once again. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Now, let me leave that up for a second. Let's just be honest. Are you there? (laughs) Do you really expect God to do great things? I think your level of expectation kind of goes with your level of actually doing something, right? So if you come here with a very, very low expectation of God doing anything in your life, then you're pretty much going to do nothing. I'm hoping and praying that about by the time we're done, you will actually say, you know what? There is this faith rising up within me. I'm going to step out. I'm going to expect great things from God. And I'm actually going to attempt great things for God. 
this morning we're going to look at a man who embodies this sentiment, and his name is Jonathan. And it comes from the book of 1 Samuel. You want to go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel. We're going to start out in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. And I, and I realize that 1 Samuel is, is a difficult book to study. It's, it's a long book, and the, the verses we cover on Sunday morning are, are vast, and maybe you're unfamiliar with the story. But hang in there. I encourage you to go to your ethos, discuss it even further. But hang in there. This is good stuff, good Word of God right here speaking truth to us. Let me set the bleak scene for you, try to bring you into the context There is a a bleak scene facing the kingdom of Israel. It's one of complete helplessness. The king of Israel, his name is Saul, has recently been rebuked by the prophet Samuel for his rashness of an improper sacrifice. Saul is now a rejected king who will be replaced, and Samuel has departed from Saul and is no longer giving him divine input. Let's go ahead and jump in and look at the split between Samuel and Saul. Starting in verse 15, chapter 13, verse 15. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Saul and Samuel split. Saul has this remnant of an army. Most of the men have retreated. They're hiding in caves. He's got 600 men with him. Israel is surrounded by the Philistines, and they're under siege. Verse 16. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Haran. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zobium toward the wilderness. Stick with the context. I know this is, this is tough going here. Let's get started. Philistine raiders are bombarding the Israelites and have them surrounded from all different directions. They're keeping the Israelite troops, what little are left, keeping them in check. And they're keeping them contained. And to make matters worse, get this, the Israelite army does not have weapons. Nice army with no weapons. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goats. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. All right, put it together. You ready? Summarize what we've just been talking about. Saul rejected king. The Israelites are surrounded by the Philistines. Most of the Israelites are hiding in caves. The guys that are left do not even have weapons. They are completely helpless. Now, if you've ever read your Bible before, I assume that some of you have read the Bible before. When you find a scene where somebody or a group of people... God's people are completely helpless. 
you usually find a story about God showing up. That tends to happen often in the Bible. They're completely helpless. And then, yeah, that's a good spot for God to show up. Because God has a habit of showing up when things are completely helpless or hopeless. But let me tell you this. This is a great phrase. Latch on to this. Helplessness is not hopelessness. Helplessness is not hopelessness. My guess is that some of you came in here with the list of your despair, a list of your suffering. Some of you are, are suffering with a variety of struggles. You know what they are. Some of you may be suffering with a variety of sin struggles. You know what they are. But helplessness does not equal hopelessness. Maybe this is a good time for God to show up in your life. Maybe he's going to show up and bring a breakthrough in your life soon. But get this. God tends to move when a certain individual takes a step of faith. I'm really big on preaching the sovereignty of God. God's sovereign. He's in control. But when I read the Bible, he tends to move when a certain individual takes a step of faith. Sovereignty does not exclude human initiative and human action. You may be ready for God to do something in your life while you do nothing, but it often goes together in some mysterious way, his sovereignty and your human action. And the instrument of God's movement here is this guy named Jonathan. And for the rest of our time today, we're going to talk about Jonathan. Let's look at chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Jonathan is Saul's son. He's everything that Saul is not. In fact, they probably mention, the author probably mentions Jonathan here to contrast him with Saul and in a sense to be the foil who shows the character flaws of King Saul. Jonathan would make a great king, but we'll get that in a moment. Jonathan tells his armor bearer, let's get ready to attack the Philistines. The situation is totally helpless, but not hopeless because Jonathan factors in God. He's like, let's go and attack these Philistines. He wants to take a risk. He wants to face the challenge. However, his dad, the king, is sitting around doing nothing, taking no initiative. Check it out. Look at verse 2 and 3. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migram. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. In contrast to Jonathan's actions is Saul's inaction. It is his complacency. He's either in the cave or some translations have him hiding under a tree. He is just sitting around doing nothing. But instead of the prophet Samuel and the priest Samuel hanging out with Saul, the narrator, the author of our text, wants us to pick up on something. He wants us to see who is hanging out with Saul. So pay attention to verse 3. Oh, yeah. By the way, this Ahijah guy, he's the son of Ahitam, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. 
the author really wants you to know that Ahijah is part of Eli's line and is a rejected priest. Put it together. You have a king who has been rejected by the Lord, King Saul. He's hanging out with Ahijah, a line of rejected priests. They are hanging out and they are doing nothing. No initiative, no action, taking no faith. They're sitting around and doing nothing. Okay. Last week we talked about waiting on the Lord. And you may think that the message this week is totally opposite. Like, Pastor, what happened to waiting on the Lord? You may think that they're they're contradictory messages. But there are times that we wait on the Lord, we don't force his hand, but there are also times where we need to take initiative and, and action. And Saul tends to confuse the two. When he should be doing nothing but waiting, he wants to do something, and when he should be doing something, he sits around and waits. There are a variety of challenges in the Christian life that you're going to face and a variety of risks that you're going to have opportunities to capitalize on. And I am just going to ask you right now, when it comes time for God to want you to do something, calling you to obey, are you going to chill, sit back in a cave under a tree, or are you going to obey? If you have an idol in your life, you're stuck in sin right now, are you having traction movement in dealing with that, or are you doing nothing? You have an opportunity to share your faith. Are you doing that or are you doing nothing? You have an opportunity to take a risk with your money for the kingdom. Are you doing that or are you doing nothing? I want to make sure, a little introduction here, I want to make sure that you know what you signed up for as a Christian. When you decided to become a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, you signed to follow the Lord Jesus until your death. And that might be an early death in following him. You signed up to take risks, to step out, to obey, to follow him as Lord completely. So I want to pull back and I want to hit you with a a different set of questions that are asked by a certain ministry in South Asia. And the, the group is called Asian Access. And they have a set of questions they ask new converts to see if they are really serious about following Jesus. I'm going to ask you those questions right now. Are you serious about following Jesus? Question number one. Are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? In some cultures, you convert to Christianity, you're done. Question two. Are you willing to lose your job? Some cultures, you convert, become a Christian, you're fired. Are you willing to go to the village those who persecute you, forgive them and share the love of Christ with them. Are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Are you willing to go to prison? Are you willing to die for Jesus? I'm asking you, are you willing to die for Jesus in a very safe environment? Can you imagine if I was in Pakistan right now speaking to Christians who their brothers and sisters were just killed by a bomb in the last 24 hours and asking you, are you ready to die for Jesus? How serious would you be? It's comfortable here. We pull back on risk. We don't want to take challenges. We don't want to step out. We want safety. 
And I'm not making you feel bad because you're living here in America where it is safe, and yet there's still risks that God is calling you to take. Obedience where he wants you to follow through and obey his commands, and it will be risky. And it will likely cost you something. This guy named Jonathan we're talking about, he's ready to do something. He is ready to do something. Look at verse 4. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Boses and the name of the other was Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Did you notice all the cragginess? This is a rocky passageway over to the Philistines. It even has two names, Boses, which means slippery, and Sina, which means thorny. Jonathan and his Arab ever, in order to get over to fight the Philistines, have to take a route to the Philistines that basically seems impossible. So not only are they going to face a, a challenging situation, but to get there is very difficult. And there are times when God calls us to take risks of faith, and they will be dangerous. I've been thinking about our missionaries recently. By the way, I love our missionaries. Our missionaries are homegrown. You know what that means? That means they used to be sitting right where you're sitting, and God has called them out onto the field, so that may be you one day. But I love our missionaries. They, they take such crazy risks. We have a missionary in our, in our church who was kicked out of one country, and instead of just coming back and saying, well, I guess I got kicked out of a country, God must want me to quit being a missionary. No, he just... All right, I got kicked out of one country. Let me go to another dangerous country. We have another missionary. I'm not saying names or places right now. I'm not going to give you any locations. But this missionary is like, well, there are terrorists attacking. There are people being oppressed. It's very dangerous. Uh, I want to go there. I don't know about you, but if I hear areas where there's bombs and terrorists, I'm like, okay. I'll be staying in Evanston, right? But we have people within our congregation, they say, you know what? Rather than run from situations, let's go there. Let's run toward them. And I know many of you, most of you will not be over in the field, but there are situations in your life where you will have a decision to make. God will be calling you to take a step of faith, to step out and to run toward a situation. And once you go that direction, it will be hard and challenging. And you are brought up in a culture of safety. You are brought up in a culture of making things comfortable for you. But can you believe it, that God actually calls you to fulfill his will in many ways that will be hard, that will make you uncomfortable, that will disturb your me time? How about we start being a people rather than run away from challenging situations? We start running toward them. Because often when we run toward them, that's the call of God in our lives. That's what Jonathan is doing. He's going toward them. Well, how is it possible? How can he do that? Well, this is the main verse of the whole passage. So if you want to circle, underline verse 6. Verse 6 is what it's all about. Look at verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord for, from saving by many or by few. 
And there it is. It's the key faith statement. Jonathan is totally focused on the Lord. Now, he's not presuming upon God. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Jonathan's like, hey, you know what? Maybe God wants to do something here. Philistines are attacking us. These uncircumcised Philistines, they're attacking us. These pagans against God. You know what? Maybe God wants to do something here. Can anything hinder God? Jonathan, he's not like, he's not like an NU student, okay? He's not doing the math. He's not saying, all right, there's two of us and there's not two of them. He's not going, you know, if we can angle our way through the cragginess, he's not trying to factor in all the rational things to say, look, we're outnumbered. This is not going to work. He's not trying to get all intellectual and write a paper about it before he does it. He's like, you know what? Maybe God wants to do something here. That's the way I want to live. I want to look at the challenges, what God's calling me to do, and I want to say, you know, Maybe God wants to do something here. Maybe he wants to pull something off. I want that, that, that sentiment that William Carey had. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Maybe God wants to do something. Huh. Let's see. Watch the outcome of Jonathan's faith risk. Check it out. Verse 7. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the, to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be a sign to us. I mean, that is a very strategic battle plan, right? The plan is this. If the Philistines say, hey, come over here, that's a sign from God that we're going to win. Great plan. Look what happens. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. The Philistines spot Jonathan and his armor bearer. They're like, Come over here. We're going to get you. And so Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Ha, let's go. God's going to get them. Verse 13. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. How is that for math? Two killed 20. The victory went to Jonathan and his armor bearer, and it totally shocked the Philistines. 
And Jonathan, he is the man. He would make a great king. Unfortunately, his dad has blown it. There will be no kingship for Jonathan. There will be no dynasty in Saul's line. But can we kind of pause for a moment and say, good job, Jonathan? Can we pause for a moment and say that the story of Jonathan's victory is a micro version of the greater story of King Jesus? Let's just pause to consider that for a moment. It's a micro version. King Jesus, he is the son of God who left his throne and glory to come down in the flesh to this earth. He led a perfect life and he took on the enemies of God, of sin, Satan, and death when he headed to the cross. And on the cross, he bore the wrath of God in the place of people like you and me, sinners. And he died and rose again victoriously. Now, everyone in here, anyone in here who wants to put their faith in Jesus can be forgiven their sins and caught up in the victory of Christ. And what we see in the story of Jonathan is a micro version of the greater victory of King Jesus. And those who put their faith in Jesus are caught up in his victory. But in our story here today, Jonathan pulled off the victory by the power of God, and the Israelites are caught up in the victory. Look at verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold... The multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Please get this. Don't miss this. God is clearly routing the Philistines. God is clearly winning. And Saul says, bring the ark here. (laughs) Do, Do you know why he wants the ark? Because he wants to inquire of the Lord whether he should go to war. Let's put it in modern day terms. We would say, God is clearly moving and Saul wants to pray. Now, I'm not downplaying prayer because I talked about it a lot last week. It's a big deal. But there are many things that God has told us in his word. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. There are many things that God has told us in his word, and you don't need to sit around and pray about it. You just need to obey about it. All right? Too many times God has said, do something. We're like, all right, I'm going to pray about it. We know we're supposed to share the gospel with people, right? Maybe there's been someone you've been working with for a long time, and you know you're supposed to share the gospel. Yeah, I'm just going to pray about it. Some of you are in a dating relationship where you're dating someone who does not know the Lord, and uh, God's like, no, 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 no. And you're like, yeah, I'll just pray about it. There are many instances in our lives where you don't need to pray about it. You just need to obey about it. You need to do something. And here's Saul kicking back, chilling. What should I do? Should I... No, it's time to do something. And Saul finally clues in and goes to battle. And we finish up the story. Verse 19. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, he's he's praying, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went to the battle. And behold, 
every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Avon. Right there. Who pulled off the battle? Who pulled off the victory? Says the Lord saved Israel that day. And he did it through the actions of a person who had great faith. And so a good summary of this passage would be helplessness is not hopelessness when faith takes action. You look out. Situation seems challenging, seems helpless, not hopelessness. Maybe it's time for you to do something. Maybe it'd be time for you to not even pray about something that is very clear in his word, but by the power of his spirit, it's time to act and do something. God pulled off the victory. John had these great expectations. And boom, he had that sentiment of William Carey where expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. One of my favorite authors and speakers and preachers, is, you know, you guys know this is Francis Chan. Some of you have read his books. I was reading one of his books recently. He has a marriage book out. Kind of cool. My wife and I have been reading it together. But one of the stories there has nothing to do with marriage. He was uh, talking about how he was about to speak before a Christian concert. And he was backstage praying. This is what pastors do. God. Move, move in power. God, move like you moved during the time of Elijah where you brought the fire from heaven. God, move in a powerful way. And then he was talking to God. God, why don't you move like that for me? Why don't you move in the same way for me as you did for Elijah? And Chan says he felt God kind of speak to him, though not audibly. And he felt that God said to him, I had to move with fire from heaven for Elijah. Because if I did not move, he would have been killed. But you, you're about to speak before a Christian concert. And the point for Chan was, too many times we're asking God, do this, do that. But our faith and our risk is almost non-existent. And we're asking God to do these powerful things in our life, and yet there is no movement or traction of faith facing challenges stepping out. And yet when we take these risks of faith and challenges, you will often find that you will encounter God in a powerful way because if he doesn't show up, something bad's going to happen. And I'm not trying to get you to focus on your faith. I'm trying to get you to focus on God. Jonathan was a man consumed with God. He took these risks because he had his eye on God. Perhaps God's going to do something. Spend more time staring at God, looking at God, contemplating his holiness and his power. And I believe the ways that you contemplate, talk to God, consider him in his word, it will motivate you and spur you on to greater risk of faith. I'm not trying to pump up your faith. I'm trying to pump up your faith by looking at God. I want to end by telling you a story. There is a story about Martin Luther King Jr. 
And it's a story about how a big God prompted some faith risks. I want to make sure you stay with me in the story. Uh, Some of you have seen the movie Selma. Others may have um, tuned in last week with the 50th anniversary of the march on Bloody Sunday. But I want to reference this morning uh, and draw your attention to Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. What I'm going to read to you this morning is Dr. King is trying to stir up white Christian leaders. And he's trying to stir them up to take action and not to be indifferent against the wrongs against African Americans. So how is Dr. King from his jail cell going to stir up white Christian leaders to take action and not be indifferent? And this is what he does. He does this by referring to the early Christians. So try to track with me. This is what he says about the early Christians. He says that whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. And here's what I want to share with you. Ready for this? Latch on to this. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. He's saying that the, the early Christians were so focused on God, what threats could even touch them? And that's what King is trying to say. He's like, I don't want to be so consumed with God. I want you leaders to be so consumed with God that it doesn't matter what challenges are facing you. And then you come on with Jonathan, so God intoxicated. Let's go through this cragginess. Let's go face those Philistines. That's the way I want to live. And I assume that's the way you want to live, that there is no challenge, there is no trial, where you are so consumed with God, it's not going to matter. You will not be intimidated. God wants you to have great expectations from him. We want to expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And I know there's a lot of things that you may have thought about or you may let pass after today's sermon and you may go away and do nothing. I put this challenge to you and it goes like this. Pick one thing. Pick one thing in your life, one area in your life where you're going to expect God to do great things. And by faith, you're going to step out and do something. You may have been stuck in a sin for 10 years, and your expectations of getting out of that sin are pretty much zero. But you're going to have expectations by the power of God. You're going to expect to have victory, and you're actually going to step out and do something about it. Maybe there's someone you have not shared Jesus with, you need to share Christ with, and you're going to step out and do it. What is that one area of your life, that one, what is that one thing you need to do where you have to have great expectations from God and attempt great things for God? Let's pray. Father, I, you know the challenges in my life, and you know the challenges in my brothers' and sisters' lives. And we get immobilized. A lot of times we want to do nothing, and, and sometimes we've just accepted our lot like we're hiding in a cave or hiding in a tree doing nothing. May you make us intoxicated with you. Make make us consumed with you. 
makes itself fixated on you and your glory and your power and your kingdom. Do a work within us that we'd have greater expectations that maybe you want to do something here. Maybe you want to do something in our lives that we have prayed about, thought about, seen about in the word. Help us to step out and do something empowered by your spirit. And help us to trust you. To trust you that you're in charge here. But Lord, whatever happens, may we not go out here today and do nothing. May we not go out here today and expect nothing. May we not go out here today and attempt nothing. May we not let your word just fall to nothing. For your glory, Lord, for your glory, for your fame, may we expect great things from you and attempt great things for you. In Jesus' name, amen.